Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and to Bunjil, the great creation spirit. The colonial project is an ongoing one, but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Two brilliant novelists in the house today. Catherine Braben, uh, talking about her latest book, Body Friend, a gorgeous meditative novel about the people we are in relation to the bodies we inhabit, um, which is out now through Ultimo Press. And Nadine J. Cohen, who has just released her funny and tender debut, Everything and Everyone, about the things that break us and the bonds that help put us back together, out now through Pantera Press. It's my great pleasure to introduce this morning our first guest on Literati Glitterati, Catherine Braben. Catherine is the multi-award winning author of The Memory Artist and and the shut-ins. Body Friend is her third book, and it's a steady and profound meditation on the relationship between the body and the self. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Mel. So happy to be here. Oh, we are absolutely delighted to have you. So the book opens with our lead character. She's reflecting on a period in her life around five years ago when she's recovering from a surgical procedure, um, and she's sort of learning to to cope with a chronic autoimmune disease. In the wake of this operation, she meets two women, two doppelgangers, I suppose you would call them. First, Frida, who she meets at the pool. And secondly, she meets uh, Sylvia, who she meets at the park. And they both sort of represent different aspects of her of her recovery, of her journey to sort of acceptance and to living within this body. Maybe we'll start by talking about the kind of the popular appeal and the mythology of a doppelganger. Absolutely. Um, you're right that I, I do see them as, as doppelgangers. I guess maybe to backtrack a little bit to my own kind of genesis of the book, I remember when my first book, The Memory Artist, came out, I still recall saying to a friend, oh, I just don't think I'll ever write about the body and illness. And I think that's kind of, I guess, funny to me now, considering the book that's just come out. But I think I was very much in a state, I have a chronic illness, and I was very much in a state of kind of confrontation with it. So writing about it wasn't something I wanted to do. But now I think, you know, with, with those years um, between, I wanted to find a way to convey the experience of being in a body that is chronically ill, that is in pain. And, and it's a very cyclical kind of relationship with your body. And so for me to try and find a way to have that in a literary work, you kind of draw on devices like that, I suppose. Um, and so for me, they were ways to kind of those two characters, those doppelgangers, were ways to convey not too literally in the sense of like, you know, you, you do sometimes feel like a different person, but those two characters see their body and their illness. They're both chronically ill as well in very, very different ways. And I kind of wanted to show the narrator being drawn to those two women at different points, sometimes in the day, sometimes in a week or a month, just to kind of show how changeable it is to be in a chronically ill body or to be in anybody really um but how that feels um mentally and I think those two yeah doppelgangers and they, they kind of go back in in history I guess like Dostoevsky and um even more recently Deborah Levy's book has that doppelganger mm. figure there is something about that other self that draws us in that makes us see 
maybe ourselves in another way. I also love Elena Ferrante's um, characters in my the, my Brilliant Fen series because I feel like they're what you call sort of the foil character that reflects you, reflects another side of you and reflects what you are not um, and maybe what you hope to be or are. So I'm very interested in all that kind of mirroring and doubling and, and reflections in, in other works and it was something that I really wanted to to kind of employ as well in this book. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you've named them Sylvia and Frida, mm. and I wanted to ask you about the significance of those of those names. Sure, yeah. I think so in the book I do refer a little to art and other writers and and poets. And I think um, for me it was really interesting to, one, do a little bit of research. I guess this is not a heavily researched novel in the sense that it's drawing from my own experience a lot of the time and then fictionalising things, but... I was interested in other artists who had a relationship with illness in some way and so I, I was really drawn. It, it was quite often to a lot of female artists, so um, Francesca Woodman, the photographer, and the way she represented her body and herself in her photography and then Frida Kahlo, who, ha- who was in a terrible uh, collision with a bus and a, a tram when she was quite young and had severe spinal injuries for a lot of her life and then her body and her figure became such a you know identifiable part of her art she she literally painted her body and that she, her body was in plaster corsets for a long time and then she painted those and she painted herself in them she painted herself from bed and then Sylvia Plath um, I was read this poem of hers in plaster which is a woman lying in plaster in bed and then she starts talking about how the plaster self is sort of taking on its own personality and wants to leave her and it was it's this very very powerful piece um I think for me it 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 references sort of the body and illness but also identity and sort of blurring of identities so yeah I guess the the two characters names I'd like to put them in there as you know I guess slightly gesturing to that research and those artists. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, as a reader, they're like little Easter eggs and little clues yeah. and other other paths that we can take to sort of to sit more within this subject, I suppose. Yes, I think so. And I like that idea of just having them sort of those parts there, those researched elements. I talk about some other artists with, um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, which is what I have, and they're not there as sort of a um, a heavy thread in the book, but I, I wanted to just leave them there to sort of contribute to the atmosphere, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is very much a book that that looks out in order to explore the depths of what is happening within. And, and to that end, I mean, it's such a gorgeous rhythmic book to read it is to sort of to fall into step with the rhythms and the patterns and the minutiae of your of your own body I very much felt that as I was reading it it loops and it it sort of it ebbs and flows it's almost a cyclical experience and I wanted to ask you about the process of of writing in that way how do you write in a way that reflects how we how we move and how we how we live. Yeah, I love that question because I think it gets to one of the maybe the challenges or the kind of the formal parts of this book that I kind of grappled with in that when you kind of when you write a novel you obviously want people to be drawn in, you want them to enjoy it, you want them to keep reading, but then when you want to convey a body that doesn't run by a you know a linear predictable narrative that doesn't have particularly you know, gripping plot points. Um, it's a, it's you're making kind of a feeling that you hope the reader stays with, rather than 
kind of a, a page turner. So I think for me that was always a challenge of trying to stay, I guess, true to what I wanted the book to be, which was this feeling of being in this chronically unwell body. And as you say, it's cyclical. Um, you know, there's um, parts of being chronically ill that are incredibly sort of, you know, boring, um, a lot of sameness and a lot of up and down, I suppose. Mm. So I did want the experience of reading to feel like that. And it always feels a little bit like a creative risk because you, you know, you don't want the, you know, you don't want the reader to be kind of put off by that. But when you're writing, kind of can't think about that. So I think for me, it was good because I was able to kind of just, I've read a lot of this during the sort of the last six months of the lockdowns and things. So I think not not being too out in the world was probably the perfect conditions to make something that, as you say, is sort of very, very interior and, and looking out. It's a challenge to try and convey that that experience, but I wanted the book to to really feel like that. And that means that the reader may have those points of kind of like, oh, another bad day. Oh, is she going, is she saying this again? And like maybe a slight element of frustration is a good thing. And to me, that's also an interesting question about art in general. Like, do you have to be loving it and drawn along all the time? Or I feel like that with some songs that I remember, you know, maybe not liking once or, you know, you listen to them again and you feel that, you know, you just weren't in the right frame of mind for it or something. Um, yeah. And yeah, just those those questions are kind of interesting for me as someone who tries to create very much a quite an intense feeling in a book um, and then it's out there I guess and then that's yeah that's the next stage and that's that's beyond you yeah wow I mean I think it's such an such an interesting um I was going to call it an interesting game let's run with that yeah <laughs> uh where you're sort of yeah you're trying to convey the the anxiety and the boredom of being in a body that's in pain um but in a way that it's not a boring and anxious read, yes. <laughs> which is an extraordinary thing and an extraordinary, as somebody who also experiences chronic pain, it's a real comfort to to be able to read that and to be bathed in that world um, and to feel like you're not alone. And I suppose to loop back to what we were talking about before, that the role of these doppelgangers, you've got, you've got Frida, who's very much sort of out in the world, who's swimming at the pool every day, who's trying to experience sort of... Um, I don't know, like awe and to push her body and to um, and to challenge it. And then you have Sylvia, who is much more introverted, who, you know, has uh, deep sort of interior moments, who sits alone, who, who might come over and sit in the room f- with you for days and that can be quite trying and quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that that split? Yeah, I think maybe on one level it was making the contrast really, really stark between the two women uh, on one level to show how sometimes with, with a chronic illness you really feel like you're in a different body from one day or one month to the next and sometimes you do have that sense of being able to control it or thinking that you can um, and then other days feeling completely different. I think tied to that is sort of the the idea of narratives of the body and what we expect of a body, I suppose, and how that sort of links into, I guess, ableist narratives in some way of, you know, oh, just go for a walk and you'll feel better. Or, you know, that idea that you can fix yourself. And, you know, I still get targeted with ads telling me they can fix whatever problem I have or joint problem and things. Um, And just that narrative we kind of want to hear that we can control. And I have sympathy for that because I, 
I understand how out of control you can feel when you're particularly when you're first diagnosed and wanting to to lean into that narrative absolutely and then on the other hand kind of the narratives around rest and how complicated that can be how it's sort of become this thing on our to-do list to kind of self-care and and rest and things and how I guess when you're chronically ill you feel that I don't know you feel bad sometimes resting because you feel lazy um like and there again there those are words those are narratives that sort of where we've told ourselves or we learn about the body um we're not resting well enough or um we're resting too much and so I wanted through those two women to kind of I guess personify those narratives in quite an extreme way but I think towards the later stages of the book to really complicate that and show that they do maybe contradict each other in many ways but then how it's not really possible for one person to feel like they can be one of those narratives all the time so yeah I'm interested in the ways we we speak about the body or expect it to do things sort of as a society but also I think to ourselves because we're just in this constant relationship with our bodies that we don't always think about um and it is sort of a it's a bit of an internal dialogue and it's a felt dialogue and then in the context of illness it's um it's something you're just so so aware of so I wanted to sort of have that that push pull sort of a constant in the book absolutely and I think that that's really that's really interesting and it's really felt when those those characters and your own rub up against uh the able-bodied characters in in the book your partner your friendship group um and the way that those narratives play out when when you have to talk to somebody else about something that is felt um the idea that we can never truly understand the way somebody else is feeling yes. and the loneliness in that is, is really felt in this book in quite a beautiful way. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, I think, it again, it really interests me as a writer who, you know, words are what I work with and then how words can can fail us or can fail to get to where we hope that they will. I find it quite interesting even, you know, in the context of medical appointments and things, you know, trying to describe a sensation or pain and we we rely on metaphor or we rely on you know numbers out of 10 and things like that to convey how we're feeling and I think in the again in you know a chronically ill body maybe those those good and bad days are not always so stark like Mm. they're not always as stark as they are you know in a Frida or Sylvia kind of sense but it's very hard maybe to convey to to somebody a slightly worse day or a slightly better day um, and what you feel capable of on those days. Um, I know sort of a lot of people in the, um, you know, disability and chronic illness community who talk about that and that sense of, you know, you know, when you can do a lot one day but then you need a lot of time after that to rest, how that seems strange maybe to somebody who doesn't have that experience, mm-hmm. whether personally or through somebody they know. And so um, it is, I think, something the character really struggles with um, to, on the good days, everything feels really good and she feels like so much is possible. But then on those sort of bad days, I suppose, um, she feels frustrated but she's not sure if that's if the frustration is also from other people around her. It's mm. sort of that how people perceive you and how you perceive others on a bad day is something that's quite complicated for the narrator. She's not sure if she's making the world fe- seem a certain way because of how her body is that day or if the world really is like that and that ties to how you know we we see the body and we 
we feel the world through our body. So it's so it's so tied to how we perceive everything. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can I ask you um, a personal question about about the process of writing this book while experiencing the ebbs and flows of that that very pain and the need to kind of communicate that and work within your lives. When you hit a bad writing day and you've got a bad pain day mm-hmm. and your book is about sitting within that, how do, you, how do you negotiate it? What do you do? Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't actually think I've thought, thought this through or thought of that. I uh, think it's, yeah, it's no, all I, like I thought that. about. It's one of yeah, the things that wow. I really thought about and I was like, what enormous grace to write this book. Um, I imagine there would have been some tough days. Yeah, and I guess it's it's interesting to me because I was writing about maybe loosely based on events that did happen some years ago. So I think I was always in the sense that I was in the past tense, I guess, in writing, and I never really felt like I was writing about something that had just happened to me. So maybe it didn't have that raw element. Um, but then I think it's interesting what you say about, you know, a bad writing day and a bad, you know, headache or backache or, or sort of day. I feel like they are I'm I'm learning more and more that they're so they're so intertwined just for for all of us maybe not even just in a in a creative sense but just that sense that you can or can't do something or don't feel up to something um and is it maybe because of how your body's feeling and I guess I'm probably quite attuned to that in the sense of understanding um a bad day but I think I as a writer probably I've got precious time to write so I guess I'll probably try and um just just push through it's interesting I don't know necessarily if that's impacted the the writing itself mm. but it would be yeah fascinating to kind of think maybe some passages are, are drawing maybe when I I feel like you're drawn to more of a maybe a more poetic style or something in in kind of a state of maybe something acute um and I feel like that definitely has an impact on the book um and of course you're sort of editing and going through layers and layers of the book itself so maybe on some level there are those sort of days throughout but yeah I think it's a as a book it's probably a little it is a little bit of an artifact of experience as well it is sort of like reflected in in a body that is still going through these these fluctuations. So, yeah, I haven't thought of that. It's fascinating, though. Yeah, wow. Catherine, we've talked about the sort of, um, I suppose, the quietness of the narrative in a plot sense and the meditativeness of it and its cyclical kind of nature because it is sitting in the body and in its pain and in its relation to the outside world. Um, I'm wondering about the process of feeling finished with a book like this. When does it hit that point where you're like, this is, this is right and true, this documents the experience? When did you feel ready to, to release it or to, to send it on to a trusted reader? Yeah, I guess with any book, it's always... The, I don't, I've never felt like I've had that, oh, it's done moment mm. because I think um, I write in a way that is maybe... Um, not particularly linear and so I'm sort of working on different parts of it at different times um, and I think particularly with this book I I had the sense that I uh, didn't quite I couldn't quite see it from the outside if that makes sense or from an objective point of view which always is the case I think with with a writer and their work but I think with this one in particular because it felt so close in sort of almost a bodily sense to me and my own experience, it was maybe a harder one to find that that endpoint um, with. But I think 
I knew that I wanted it to have that sort of cyclical feeling. Mm. And so for me, the, the plot sort of, I guess there's a, a, there's a thin, thinner plot, but it does sort of circle back in some ways to the, to the beginnings of the book. And so Mm. I sort of felt myself heading towards that stage, I suppose. So once I had sort of gotten to that point, that was probably when I felt like it was maybe ready to, to go to someone else. I do always sort of tinker and, and edit myself, but um, I think I I hold it pretty close for a long time for, with books for me, so I don't I don't really share all that much. I don't really share during the writing at all until it's I feel like it's as as polished as I can get. So I guess I I get to a finished point, and then I spend sort of ages fussing over it again before it before it goes um, on to anybody. Well, it is it is lyrical, and the language is is very very beautiful, and and it. It lives and breathes as its own organism. I know it's only very early days. The book has only been out for a couple of weeks, but um, I'd love to know what you know if there's been feedback from readers or if you've heard if you've heard anything from people out there since the book's been released. Uh, yeah, I've had some lovely um, responses. Um, like yourself, I've heard from people who do have a chronic illness or mm. know somebody with a chronic illness, and I think that has been the. Um, probably most rewarding aspect so far is to hear that people have felt that it reflected how things that they had felt or thought but not articulated themselves and I that was always the I guess the motivation to write this book is you're you know you're sort of always wanting to find a way into something new or different and I felt like a a book that sort of was a novel but it centered the body and chronic illness was something that I you know, hadn't read a lot of and I felt like it was something that I could could offer and put out there. So mm-hmm. to have that, yeah, people feel, I guess, recognised is um, is a really it, – it's sort of – I don't know why it's surprising. I know that chronic illness does impact a lot of people, even particularly younger people, but to have um, quite so many people sort of say that already has been um, a good thing, definitely. That's so wonderful. Catherine Braben, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. Oh, it's been wonderful chat, Mel. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely loved it. And please do get a copy of Body Friend uh, from, you know, your local bookshop if you can or pick it up from the library. It's a gorgeous book. Really filled me up. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It is my great pleasure to introduce on Literati Glitterati our second guest for this week. Nadine J. Cohen, also known as Nadine Von Cohen, is terrifically present online as a news, fashion and pop culture commentator and also as a social media larrikin. Everyone and everything is her hilarious and tear-jerking debut novel, a work of autofiction that takes a look at how we find ourselves teetering on a ledge and the tools we need to walk ourselves back off them. Welcome to the show, Nadine. Hi, thank you for that. You Uh, can introduce me every time oh cool I've I've pride myself on being a good hype man <laughs> no um this is a fantastic book a total weekend ruiner as advertised I received it on Friday and I'd already gorged it by Saturday afternoon thank you for that you're welcome I think I've been apparently ruining weekends all over the country so sorry but not sorry <laughs> that's also a great way of being introduced I think <laughs> the weekend ruiner Nadine <laughs> Tell us about this book. Um, it's 
it's a funny book. It's a it's a desperately sad book. It's a book about about grief, about suicide, about falling apart, and about rebuilding. Can you tell us how the seeds were sown to to start it? Yeah, sure. In the lead up to re- releasing the book, I was like, "Am I gonna am I gonna like cop to the fact that it's autofiction? <laughs> am I am I gonna just just own it?" And we've decided I am. Great. So it's very much my story um not all of it it is autofiction so for it's um fictionalized truth mm-hmm. um and i l- love the plausible deniability of being able to say what's true and what's not at least um but yeah it came about because i had uh, had a you know a, a mental break um somewhat 7 8 years ago yeah. and it is the story of putting myself back together and but also the title is everyone and everything because it's the idea that you get to a place because of everything that's happened to you leading up to that moment and so the book goes back into the lead character Yael's past which is subsequently my past and kind of says like this is how she ended up in that in that place yeah, absolutely. It's kind of looking at everything that has come before and everything that lays ahead and the universality, I think, as well of of feeling really shit <laughs> and, and of feeling like you need other people around you to help you see the light again. Mm. And, and I think that what is so moving about reading this book is it really um, it, it lights up those things that make life worth living. Mm. Um, one of them is... The primary setting of this book, I think, is the women's baths in Sydney, mm. which just sounds like such a gorgeous and magical place. And I was hoping you might be able to, you know, paint the picture for us slightly. Sure. Mm. I mean, I want to apologise for it being set in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> but so the women's baths are a wonderful haven set into the rocks um, in Sydney between Coogee Beach and what's known as Wiley's Baths, which is another ocean pool. Mm. And... The women's bus, it's, it's an ocean pool that was constructed by nuns a century ago so that they could bathe privately and it's retained that gender exclusivity mm-hmm. that has now been thankfully broadened slightly mm-hmm. um, after a bit of a battle. But it's so it's an ocean pool and then there's, you know, grass areas and rocks around it and if you walk in in spring or summer there are topless women just sunbathing everywhere and you feel like you're in some sort of commune and it's just a wonderful place. Wow. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like a really great place to lay back with your Kindle and kind of quietly read um, borderline pornography (laughs) poorly written, which is what your character does. Um, Fantastic. Gorging themselves on mango smoothies. (laughs) It's also the place where she meets uh, a woman named Shirley who is sort of a, a, a grandmother figure or a mother figure, sorry, to... Yeah, to, I think both, yeah, either. <laughs> just a, a really important, you know, maternal character in Yale's life. Um, you've recently written really beautifully in The Guardian about about your relationship with sort of across generations and mm. with older women. Can you tell us about Shirley and, and about why she matters? <laughs> so Shirley is not... A real person, but is loosely based on a few different older women that I have had friendships with in the past. Um, I've always been someone that's drawn to to older people in some ways. Um, it really makes me upset the way that 
other people talk about them sometimes and, you know, they're cute or, or things like that. And these are a group of people with stories. Mm. They have, And as a writer, like, I'm attracted to stories as well. That's why the women's bus as well. Like, you just look around and I'm like, there's so many stories here. Lots of boobs, lots of stories. Lots of boobs, lots of stories. Sometimes dolphins. Mm. Um, and... Yeah, um, I've just, and you know, particularly since I lost my mother and my grandmother in my 20s, in my mid-20s, and I didn't have older women in my life, and I didn't necessarily realise that that was missing. I, I missed my mother, I missed my grandmother, but the lack of kind of an older figure didn't hit me for a while, but... Yeah, I'm just drawn to. I meet them in cafes. I'm just drawn to. I'm. Draw, I mean, I'm start friendships with everyone. But well, that's really present in the book. There's this wonderful cast of characters. You know, like you, you appear to be quite good friends with your therapist, who dresses immaculately and has fantastic shoes. There's Shirley. There's Shirley's son Andy. There's um, the women who volunteer at the baths. There's you know your sister, your sister's partner your three nieces and nephews, the squids, um, you know, your friends that you call on um, and that you have outrageous kind of conversations with via text. There's all this kind of raucous joy happening amid very deep pain. Mm. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the process of capturing both things. Like how do you write a funny book about falling apart? Um, I was writing initially not a funny book. I, I, I was like, this is a sad book. This is going to be a sad book. And then I kind of halfway through, I was like, oh, there's enough sad white lady books out there. Although my, my you know, my manager was like, Jewish, Jewish lady, you're Jewish. <laughs> um, and I just thought, well, maybe I should bring, it was always going to have some humour, but I was like, maybe I should up that a bit because there are so many wonderful novels about women's sadness mm. um I wanted to kind of it to be a bit different and to bring joy from it as well and always having been a person I've had you know through the tragedy in my life you know tried to retain a sense of humor about it I think that it, it feels like a superpower like a force of resilience mm. you know to be able to stare things down when things are messy and still seek out joy or laughter or things that are just so preposterous and so ridiculous that, you know, yeah, what a, else are you going to do? There's a long tradition of it in um, the Jewish culture as well. Um, you know, Mel Brooks making Holocaust jokes not mm. too long after mm. it had happened. And and it is something that in my family at least, but in a lot of families, yeah, it's the way my mum made jokes at my dad's funeral. I made jokes at my mum's funeral. Like it's yeah, it's a coping mechanism, mm. um, but it's a way of also going, you know, you're not the only one that's gone through sadness. I try to be very aware of my privilege in sadness and, and that I'm not, you know, I'm one of billions of people with mm. with a story to tell, um, but that, there, yeah, there should be light and shade in all of it because there is in life. Yeah. Can I ask you about the process of remembering for this book? Because there are so many funny stories. Um, I have the privilege of also working for The Big Issue and I know they're about to publish a great personal essay by you about the time that you had to mime playing the alto sax when you were eight years old under your teacher's instruction. So bad. I was so bad at the saxophone. Oh, I just can't believe that they gave you a saxophone at that age and that you could carry it. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, I, it was... Memories are interesting um, 
My memory definitely used to be very good. It's definitely, as I as, as I go on, it's definitely faded a bit. I think that the breakdown affected it a little bit. I think something in my brain changed. Mm. Um, that is an entirely non-medical opinion. Um, and there was a lot I remembered and there was a lot that my poor sister... <laughs> Who I have to, who is very present in the book. Yes, a fictionalized version of her is in the book as well. She has a great memory, and she's like three and a half, four years older than me. And so, a lot of our past and our childhood, she remembers things that happen more because mm. she was older and she was tr- more trusted with information than I was. And so she had to relive so much pain just because I couldn't remember. <laughs> Far out. The gripes of big sisters. It's an enormous <laughs> list. We carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. From For all younger sisters, we're not really sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it was more of a process for her than it was for me. What What is interesting, I think, is I wrote hundreds of thousands of words for this book. Wow. Like, there's, there's like 64,000 of them, I think, in the book. Mm-hmm. I wrote everything I remembered from my childhood everything I remember from my past because we didn't know what – I didn't know what was going to be in the book. Yeah. And writing the traumatic bits actually didn't upset me as much as – like there's a scene in the book where um, Yael's Yael's sister finds her suicide note. Yeah. Um, Spoiler alert. And – that never happened, but that's the thing that made me cry. Yeah, just wow. for some like the idea of my sister finding my, you know, she knew there was a suicide note. She she knew there was one, but she never saw it. And and something about that really triggered. Whereas the actual memories, I could, it was more cathartic, I think, to write through. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting thing about autofiction, isn't it? It's like it's sort of about um, privileging the story and the felt truth rather than the literal truth mm. and the act of bringing the felt truth to the front yeah. um, and imagining what could have been. I feel like this must have been a huge process for your sister. Has your family read the book? Like how are they responding to it? So they have. Um, I mean, my family is very small. It's yes. my sister and her husband and her kids. There's extended family around, shout out to them. Um, but, you know, my core family... Um, I started writing this book while I was doing my master's in 2017 and this book was never intended for being published. I just, I wrote, I had to write 15,000 words for a major work of something that could be a book. Mm. And so I wrote this and it was a combination of a few different, like it was a combination of a memoir I wanted to write and a fictional story I wanted to write. Mm. And I didn't really know about autofiction and my teacher was like, just do both, put them together. But I never intended to finish that. And when we signed the book deal and it was clear that I was going to finish it, my family read the book, like my sister, her husband and the two older kids mm-hmm. who are now like 16 and 18. This was maybe four years ago, three, three or four years ago. Um, and I was surprised that my sister let the kids read the book we'll read the part manuscript as it was then mm-hmm. um, because of the themes in it and because they had no idea what was going on at the time they were really little you know yeah. that's shown in the book and 
they loved it. Like they they they, they liked it. They they enjoyed it. They, like they were teenagers. They didn't really say anything. Um, my sister really liked it, and then I didn't let them read the book until it was done. Yeah. Um, like no, and, and no one did. It was just me and the editors, and I was very nervous for my sister to read it for so many reasons. You know. I was pretty sure nothing in there would offend her, but you never know what's going to offend someone. It's her past. It was. It's been very weird for her. I think reading her past through my eyes. Yeah. Um, but she loved it. They loved it. The kids loved it. You know, there were. They, they pointed out typos because they didn't read the the published <laughs> book, so that was helpful. But yeah, she she really loved it, and they've been really supportive. That's so great. And how does it feel for you to have it out in the world? Like as somebody, you know, who writes quite prolifically and has been published a lot everywhere, what does it feel like to have a long-form work, something printed like proper, you know, you've changed your name. (laughs) I have changed my name. I've lost the Vaughn. I'm sorry, the Vaughn. Vaughn, Some people still are like, the Vaughn wasn't real. I'm like, no, that's not a possible name. It's crazy. Um, how does it feel? It's it's very it's I mean it's been a week, so I'm still kind of very wide-eyed mm. about it. Um I think that the thing that struck me the most is that anyone who who reads it who knows me or knows my family knows that it's true. Other people have, you know, it doesn't say autofiction on the cover. Like yeah. it just seems like a fictional book. Um, but it's the different types of people that are reading it that I hadn't considered. Like my parents' friends. Mm didn't think they were going to read it or just never considered it. And, like, you know, there's new layers of of reactions to the book and of of people who've read the book that I kind of am being surprised by and that's really interesting. Yeah, wow. And I guess there's all the people that read it that don't give you feedback as well, right? (laughs) Like it's out there and you don't don't really know. No idea. Yeah, wow. Um, What a a thrill and maybe spooky to think about. Um, Thank you so much for writing it. It really is a delight. Thank you for reading it. Um, Everyone and Everything by Nadine J. Cohen uh, is out now in all good bookshops and at the library. It's out through Pantera Press. You really should pick up a copy. It's life-affirming, very sad, ultra-joyous, also features blackout purchases of expensive wine glasses and very nice shoes. So if that's your jam, please do get amongst it. It's just about time for me to wrap up today. I'd like to say an enormous thank you to my two esteemed guests on the show today, to Nadine J. Cohen, who you just heard talking about her wonderful book, Everyone and Everything, and also to Catherine Braben, author of The Beautiful Body Friend, which is out now. Both books are out now. Uh, Catherine's is through... Ultimo Press, Nadine's is through Pantera Press, both really good little indie publishing houses doing great things. Please do tune in next week because I've got Anna-Kate Blair coming in to talk about her stellar debut, The Modern, and Triple R hero, Clem Basto, um, who is working on uh, a wonderful anthology, actually, of writing by women and gender-diverse folks with autism. She's coming in to do a little bit of a call-out for entries. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.